0: welcome to Scope It Out. In this edition, guest host Dr. Amber Luong talks with Dr. Anastasios Maniakis and Dr. Martin DeRosier about their article, Azithromycin in High-Risk Refractory Chronic Rhinosinusitis After Endoscopic Sinus Surgery and Corticosteroid Irrigation, a Double-Blind Placebo-Controlled Trial. This episode of Scope It Out is made possible by support from Pheagon ENT Navigation. The new Pheagon Cube 4D provides easy-to-use navigation in a compact yet highly robust system. A new groundbreaking feature includes a touchless registration technique that utilizes point cloud technology to capture the entire surface of the patient's face during the registration process. With one click of a button, you can achieve superior registration accuracy all in under 20 seconds. Please visit www.fiagon.com to find out more about the new Cube 4D system and the latest groundbreaking navigation technology from Fiagon.
1: Welcome to Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm the guest host today, Dr. Amber Luong from the McGovern Medical School at the University of Texas at Houston. I've invited doctors Anastasios Maniakis and Martin DeRossier from the University of Montreal to discuss their recent paper entitled, Azithromycin in High-Risk Refractory Chronic Rhinosinusitis After Endoscopic Sinus Surgery and Corticosteroid Irrigations, a Double-Blind Randomized Placebo-Controlled Trial. Hi, Anastasios and Martin. Thank you for your time today, and congratulations on the publication of this recent study.
2: Thank you very much. Thank Thank you.
1: So it looks like you both have been really interested in this question actually for a number of time now, um, looking at the effectiveness of low-dose azithromycin as a rescue medication for those who were failing after endoscopic sinus surgery on corticosteroid saline irrigations. In fact, I saw a retrospective study that you guys published in 2014 that seems to be kind of the building foundation for this study. Can you briefly, Anastasios, tell us about that study and how it created the framework for the current study?
3: Sure, thank you very much for having us, it's a, it's an honor for us to, to be here. So this study I started off, uh, I was actually a medical student uh, back at the time, 2012, when we first started working on this, and Dr. DeRozzi was, uh, as always, very much involved in, in a lot of research, and was looking for students to participate in some of his projects. and. This one was definitely one of interest for myself as I I saw the potential of it, you know, working on new therapeutics for a a disease that is so difficult to to manage, especially for Mm -hmm. difficult to treat patients. So at that time, Dr. DeRozzi had the idea to test this approach, this macrolide approach for patients that were failing endoscopic sinus surgery. What we had seen at that time in a retrospective fashion is that we had a lot of patients that were responding in a very positive way to this treatment. Again, this was a retrospective study. We had looked at approximately almost 60 patients that had undergone endoscopic sinus surgery at the time. Mm -hmm. And then we had very good results. We had more than, I think we were almost at two thirds of the patients that had an excellent response to this treatment. The natural progress after that would be to move forward towards a double-blind randomized control trial to prove this proof of concept that had that come out from this study.
1: That makes sense. And so it looks like the study was sort of a two-phase situation. So you enrolled approximately 150 patients who were chronic rhinosinusitis who were undergoing medically indicated sinus surgery. Were there any inclusion or exclusion criteria for those patients undergoing just the original surgery? In, in, meaning, was it allergic fungal rhinosinusitis (CRS) without nasal polyps? Can you tell us about those inclusion/exclusion criteria?
3: So, the overall for the for the study itself to be able to include it, we had some classic inclusion criteria, such you know being 18 years and older. Okay. we had Patients had to have had a diagnosis of chronic sinusitis at least. You know, one of the criteria that Dr. Derosier and, and the lab had deemed as patients being at high risk for disease recurrence. Patients had to have had any sort of previous sinus surgery or any sort of sinus surgery at, at a young age. We had a cutoff of 38 years old, Okay. Um, an absolute synophilia that was elevated, uh, high IgE levels. So all the you know the, the, the well-known characteristics that have been described that make patients at high risk of disease recurrence. And we also did not necessarily exclude patients that had or did not have nasal polyposis because the overarching aspect of this study was to really look at it as a real world study, to evaluate the real world population that we see in this in our tertiary care centers.
2: Okay. So yeah, the point comes out is that is for this patient population, this patient population was truly representative of the high risk group that will present to a tertiary rhinologist. And those patients who were enriched in factors that we felt made them at higher risk of failure, as Dr. Maniacas outlined, the young age at presentation, the previous incidence of sinus surgery, the Mm -hmm. highs in affiliate, these were all factors we'd identified that predicted recurrence. But Okay. Any patient that came in that met those criteria that was undergoing surgery was recruited in a consecutive fashion. So this gives you a snapshot of what's basically a slightly over a year of bad sinus cases. And we, we don't have much in the way of allergic fungal sinusitis, but this population, as it turned out, was greatly enriched for nasal polyposis, which... Uh, I guess you do research to learn things. And as you come on, well, that, that could have informed us right away. But right. nevertheless, we started with a real population like regular rhin- tertiary rhinologists would be seeing. And we thought that this formula would be applicable for them.
1: Excellent. So I saw, so you listed the two of the criteria that you listed in your paper. The other one, just to be complete, was a total serum IgE level of greater than or equal to 150 was uh, another, I guess, criteria that would cause someone to be considered uh, a high risk for disease recurrence. Okay. So you had all these patients who were coming in who had medically indicated sinus surgery and those that were deemed a high risk based on those criteria were then enrolled. And so then what happened?
3: Well, then the, the idea was instead of just immediately trying this novel therapeutic approach to, to the mm-hmm. patients, we really wanted to wean out the patients that were the most difficult to treat patients. So we would give patients post-operatively a sinus irrigations with budesonide rescue and would follow them for 16 weeks. And we would see how they would respond if at the 16-week follow-up, uh, they had any signs of uh, disease recurrence. And we were extremely, extremely stringent with these criteria because we really wanted to have a perfect sinonasal cavity for our patients. At that point, they would be recruited for the second phase, which was the double blind randomized control phase of, of the study.
1: Got it. So let me just make sure I understand. In your paper, there's a figure one where you define disease clearance. So is that what was necessary for them to be considered excluded from the second phase? And anyone who had any sort of edema or polypoid, any anything on endoscopic exam was considered a recurrence? Is that my understanding? That's basically it, uh, Amber, is okay. that what we
2: are considering is that Anything that's less than a perfect result, in my humble opinion, is not a complete success. And the goal of surgery is to have a patient who's free of symptoms with an endoscopic cavity, which is 100% clear of disease, no edema, no polyps. And these very stringent criteria, which may appear impossible, actually even when you use this high risk group what's interesting to note is that half the patients successfully cleared with surgery and had despite their high risk status a perfect result And that what we kept was only this group of patients that at four months, obviously, were not all that ill, did not have gross recurrences, but where we felt that the edema and the symptoms would predict a symptomatic response down the road. And it's these patients who had these symptomatic and edematous responses that were kept on for the azithromycin component of the trial.
1: Got it, got it. So number one, congratulations, that is a, a very high bar. But it sounds like that patients were also symptomatic, as well as had some sort of endoscopic exam, not just one or the other. Is that, is that correct? Oh, it's a
2: combination of both. Okay. And this reflects how physicians assess patients where they like to assess symptoms and confirm with an objective method such as endoscopy. So again, we're remaining within the real world model, similar to what physicians do in their office.
1: That makes complete sense. How did you assess compliance on your budesonide saline irrigations, or or did you? And if so, how did you assess it?
3: Although then, very good. As as well as it was
2: done at the time of the trial, when (laughs) compliance was not on the landscape then, but currently a trial like this, much as we see for prescribing biologics, we have to ensure that compliance with prior therapy is being good. Nevertheless, these are highly motivated patients who know that they're in a tough spot and generally do respond well, we hope.
1: Got it. That makes sense. So then it looks like you had those patients who were deemed uh, with disease recurrence and randomized to either azithromycin, 250 milligrams, three times a week. I think Monday, Wednesday, and Friday you have listed versus a placebo for 16 weeks. Did they also continue with their steroid irrigations? I couldn't figure that out. Absolutely. Yes.
3: It was a prerequisite for them to continue with that as well.
1: I see. Perfect. And then what were your primary outcome and your secondary outcomes for this phase?
3: So our primary outcome remained the endoscopic evaluation to have, again, disease clearance in an endoscopic approach. Our secondary outcomes, of course, came with looking at these uh, symptomatic changes over time Mm -hmm. from visit two to visit three, while also looking at biochemical and microbiologic results.
1: Got it. Okay. So you basically, once you randomized them, you didn't see them back for another four months. And at that time, you had them repeat the various different questionnaires, do a Lund-Kennedy score based on your nasal endoscopy. And the nasal endoscopy was your primary outcome. And then the secondary was the quality of life uh, questionnaires, as well as some blood work, I understand. So it looks like you got the total IgE, C-reactive protein, and some CBC counts, as well as obtaining the swabs before and after treatment. Did I miss anything?
3: We had the microbiological swabs. We had a 16S RNA swab as well that was performed at each visit. And we mm-hmm. also kept some serum from each of these patients for future expression studies. But yes, that, uh, overall, that's we, we, we tried to collect as much information at each study for these patients.
2: For mechanistic purposes, there's also a cytology brushing that's done at the beginning and at the end for exploration of the underlying mechanisms using gene expression profiling. Unfortunately this isn't there yet.
1: Okay. Oh, that's, that's what you're talking about, the various different like cytokines. Expressions.
2: but we, Well, yeah, expression doesn't show cytokines well. Cytokines show up better on ELISA and nasal secretions, and we did not collect nasal secretions. We we're much more interested in exploring the upstream phenomenon that drive the inflammation and microbiologic changes.
1: Okay.
2: And what's interesting is that in our experience, much of sinus disease is related to epithelial dysfunction with subsequent microbial dysbiosis and uh, consequent inflammation, so that exploring the epithelial events with an epithelial brushing made perfect sense to us. And in other disease areas has shown that there's a senescent cell pattern to Mm -hmm. uh, severe chronic sinusitis which probably represents an interesting target for type 1, type 3 disease. And as well, that you can actually predict the amount of neutrophilia in biopsies based on the underlying epithelial endotype. So that we feel that the epithelium is involved And a confirmation of this is that in other models, when we look at the results after surgery, after administration of a therapy, in one case probiotics, we see that the main effect is a restoration of the barrier and a restoration of the cell cycle as it exits the senescence to become proliferative. so that we, we, Obviously, we would have loved to have this data for you today and go into detail with it for today. Unfortunately, we're going to be left with the microbiome. But the underlying concepts of this is that we expect to be able to probe not only whether the macrolide is working, but how it's working so that hopefully in a precision medicine approach, we can target it better in the future to the appropriate type of disease mechanism or patient.
1: So what are some of the expressions that you're looking at are basically like IL-33, amphiregulin, IL-8?
2: What we see is a concerted signal where we see a type 1 inflammation with a high degree of tissue is an aphilia, which uh-huh. is characterized by IL-1 and TNF. Okay. And that on top of this, there will be a degree of eosinophilia. And the eosinophilia, it's interesting, can be present whether there is or whether there isn't this neutrophilic component. So, in general, what we've seen in this and other models is that eosinophilia is ubiquitous within chronic sinusitis, but that the degree of type 1 or non type 2 inflammation can vary greatly between patients. And we feel that it's this variation in type 1 in type one presence, as opposed to type two, where the macrolide is making an impact. As well, we feel, and probably Anastasios will go into detail over that, is that we feel that macrolides are much more a type 1 or type 3 drug than a type 2 drug because we, we feel right. that with the benefit of hindsight, had we not administered this in type 2, our success rate would probably be gr- much greater. And when we look at the results as we'll look at this, when we remove asthmatics or aspirin sensitive asthmatics, the success rate goes up dramatically in terms Absolutely. of the azithromycin group.
1: Yeah. So why don't you summarize the results of your primary outcome?
3: Overall, our primary outcome, as we had mentioned, we were looking at a successful endoscopic evaluation following the four month treatment of azithromycin versus placebo.
1: Mm -hmm. And
3: when we look at the primary outcome, looking at all our patients included, we had a 54% response in patients that received azithromycin, so 54% of the patients who had disease recurrence prior to treatment had complete disease clearance at their their final visit versus 33% for the placebo group. Now for the 33% of the placebo group, I mean, that falls kind of in line with what you can see for placebo treatments. For azithromycin, we did expect it to be a bit higher, especially if we compare it to what we had in our practice audit. So then we had to go into some more subgroup analyses and, and kind of wean out the, the data to see what potentially may have gone wrong in terms of the, the way we had our, our, our population. And, and that's where, from what Dr. DeRozzi had just mentioned, we decided to start looking at our different subgroup populations, such as A R D patients. And when we removed patients that were asthmatics and aspirin sensitive, we actually jumped from 54% to a 71% disease clearance in this population, while the placebo group remained at 35%. And at that point, that became extremely significant in terms of the difference between our two groups.
1: The only issue I would have with that, and that does that does make sense, is that your group groupings were already relatively small, meaning 24. I know that you did a power analysis for the whole group, but it looks like seven AERD patients were randomized to the azithromycin group, which would then leave you with only 17 if you remove that. So where, did you have a statistician take a look at that? Would that still be clinically relevant, clinically, uh, statistically relevant in terms of being able to compare that, those two numbers at that, at 17 versus, I guess, uh, 19 patients when you remove right. the
3: patients. So in terms of statistically relevant, it does, it does become relevant. The, I mean, we're, we're not at a, if, if, if for any other type of population let's say we were in the 50s or 60s for both groups with this kind of analysis Mm -hmm. we would expect for example a p-value of less than 0.001 so we were statistically significant in our group but again it was you know 0.03 which kind of also brings in the aspect of of the, the size of our population now, does it remain clinically relevant? I would believe so, even though the numbers are small. But again, it, it, this is the kind of data that comes after you in your in your subgroup analyses, if, which pushes you to consider doing further, larger group studies and potentially even multi-site studies.
2: But this this opens up the discussion regarding trials of medication. And we've seen with a recent example, for example, with the dupilumab trial Mm -hmm. that's come out where there's 800 patients given an expensive medication and followed meticulously for almost a year. Well, the dupilumab study cost between 15 and $20 million US. That's a significant amount of change. And this is clearly beyond the pocket of any academic investigator. So we end up in a situation where the perfect clinical trial is like a cardiology trial. It takes a lot of patients, it takes a lot of money, and you can only do a certain limited amount of questions. And this situation is more of a proof of concept trial than a definite regulatory clinical trial. And in the same way, we have to keep working in otolaryngology to investigate questions that are germane to us and not particularly interesting to industry because of the profit motive, because not everything can make money or go on patent. So that we're stuck with some of these little trials. And with this proof of concept trial, we'd hope to be able to interest someone in answering this question more definitely. However, I would point out that Azithromycin will never make money for anybody, so it's not clear who's going to pay for this trial, and there is a trial that is ongoing in the United Kingdom that is well funded, but this doesn't address this situation. It addresses operated and unoperated patients, and in this instance, we tried to get the lowest number of patients possible by identifying the patients with the most severe disease, not treating potential recurrences. We weeded those out at the beginning, Mm
3: -hmm. but by
2: actually only treating those patients that recurred. So I'd argue that it is relevant. Someone's had perfect surgery. They've gone on budesonide. They've had good follow-up. They fail. They take azithromycin. They get better. Clearly, we have to bring the numbers up, but already this is a takeaway message that I would use to design or inform a subsequent study.
1: Yeah, your point is very well taken. That you did this within your institution, having a zithromycin and a placebo drug made. So I understand the expense. So this is thirty-five
2: thousand, as opposed to twenty million. It's it's sure. it's a different ball game. We're not even in the same. We're not even in the same sport.
1: <laughs> yeah. So let's move on to some of the secondary outcomes. Just what would you summarize, or some of the highlights from your secondary outcomes? And I understand that you had a a second paper that was recently published in IFAR that looked at the microbiome deep sequencing data on your staff forest. If you want to expand on that, I'm happy to hear about that.
3: Sure. So in terms of the of our secondary outcomes, so one of the first things that we looked at was the symptomatology of the patient uh, mm-hmm. between the two groups. And again, overall, there was no clear difference between the, the symptom changes in terms of the patients, when we look at patients that were on azithromycin versus those that were on placebo. And then that, that was just looking at the entire population. It's
2: not 22.
3: Correct. But then when we look at specifically for patients that did well, what we saw is that patients that were on azithromycin had a significant improvement compared to on their SNOT 22s versus patients that were on placebo. Uh, and, and more specifically, patients that were on azithromycin and that had a disease clearance had almost two MCID improvement on their SNOT22 compared to the patients that were on placebo that did well that actually had no improvement really in their SNOT22 scores. So that was for the symptomatology portion, that was one of our key findings that we had.
1: And then how about this uh, microbiome data that you, you did?
3: The microbiome
2: data was compelling. Because it was suggested already by conventional cultures. When we looked at everybody undergoing surgery, we found that one of the best factors that separated those that did well versus those that did poorly was identification of a staph aureus preoperatively or postoperatively, where the rate of positive staphylococcal culture actually went up so that when we entered the group that was treated with azithromycin for failures this was a population which was still relatively enriched in staphylococcus aureus and Mm. interestingly both on conventional culture but definitely on microbiome we see that the change in dysbiosis is characterized principally by a reduction in the staphylococcus aureus and that in all of the staff all of the azithromycin patients that were carriers of staphylococcus aureus the quantity of staphylococcus aureus went down in what is for the microbiome, a statistically significant and appreciable fashion. So this implicates once again, the staphylococcus aureus pathogen as a driver of chronic sinusitis, but it also offers a little hope because it shows that it can be cleared. And we don't feel that in this instance, it is the direct antibacterial effect of the macrolide, which is not a great anti-staphylococcal drug, but rather it's an effect either by reducing the inflammation or by it reinforcing barrier uh, regeneration. And somehow there's a combination of these effects that's driving out the staphylococcus aureus. So within that, that's, that's fascinating for us, is that no. this represents another way of controlling the pathogen.
3: Interesting. I'd, so- also, I'd just like to add a point to what Dr. DeRozzi was mentioning, is even on, on more in vitro analyses that were done from our lab, where we did a wound scratch assay, evaluation where we showed cells and pretty much our our cultures, our cell cultures were healing in a much more organized and in a much more, in a faster way when they were exposed to azithromycin versus just a standard vehicle. And and which once again demonstrates the potential therapeutic barrier effect of azithromycin.
2: And that's a fantastic concept. I don't know how you could put it into the podcast, but In our laboratory, the barrier dysfunction has been documented between chronic sinusitis and normal patients by a demonstration that following wounding in an in vitro model, we get impaired wound healing in the patients with chronic sinusitis. And this coincidentally is worse when you add staphylococcus aureus to it. But we feel that this impaired regeneration and restoration of the barrier is a big issue. What's also interesting is that in limited in vitro experience, Azithromycin offers an improvement on wound healing. So, suggests that there's an effect which isn't simply anti-inflammatory, but was actually barrier reinforcing. And we're really looking forward to how this expresses itself in the gene expression studies. Mm -hmm. We we believe we'll find the same mechanism.
1: That sounds very interesting. Now, I, I, I heard your point about that it may not be the actual change in the staph aureus per se, but rather the reinforcement of the epithelial barrier. That's why you're getting these success successful patients are those that are able to re establish that barrier. But you know I have to ask this, Martin, is that did you ever look at the fungal microbiome as well in the <laughs> <laughs> well, Canada's a cold country. <laughs> So
2: fungus is not uh, our same preoccupation. Dr. Manyakis is just back from fellowship in Texas, so he might feel differently about that. We haven't looked at the fungal microbiome, and that would be fascinating because the interaction of the fungus and the staphylococcus Mm -hmm. is truly believed to be key to this, and uh, I believe that it's an important part of the puzzle. And that that would be interesting to do. Right now, though, we're looking at the virome as a modulating element, and we've picked some targets in the cell cycle that we feel could be impacted by the virus, which would extend the pathogen properties from simple impairment of pathogen detection and destruction to Mm -hmm. actually interference with the physical barrier.
1: Fascinating. Well, just to end real quick, trying to take this practically, and I, I I see the the trial that you've designed. But one of the things, and I I understand the effect of the azithromycin maybe on the inflammatory changes, but at least from my understanding, stepping back, is that macrolides currently are being recommended for mainly that neutrophilic CRS with nasal polyps, and so that's a relatively at least in the U.S., that's still a relatively small percentage, or definitely a smaller percentage of CRS with nasal polyps. How do you see azithromycin being utilized? Do you think it's just it's something that we all should go to after they should fail steroid irrigations, despite let's say our pathology reports showing a high eosinophil level, or is it really focused on that? Maybe the the population that Justin Turner picked out, the you know, the more elderly patient with more of a neutrophilic picture with the nasal polyps. How do you see that?
2: Well, Dr. Turner's group with the aging population is actually very germane because what they show in his studies is that you have a constitute of high level of IL-6, which is collected on nasal secretions. Mm-hmm. And this represents inflammaging or cellular senescence. And this fits right in with our theory of mm-hmm. chronic sinusitis, which is not type two, of a senescence type of disease. So we feel that this would be where we're targeting. Unfortunately, much as in asthma, much as in COPD, bloodborne mm-hmm. or nasal markers are sadly lacking. So for the moment, we have to rely on Easily identified phenotypic characteristics such as asthma, such as AARD, such as previous surgery, in order to inform these decisions. But basically, if I had a crystal ball, what I would see azithromycin is as the first step towards managing non-type 2 disease. And it'll be very interesting as we go forward in this voyage with type 2 biologics that we're gonna start banging our nose up against the wall somewhere and Mm -hmm. that we're going to end up with patients that are unresponsive to type 2 drugs. And then we're really gonna have to up our game for type 2 diseases. Current type 1 diseases, I'm sorry, currently what you see in skin is that you differentiate between type 2 atopic dermatitis and non-type 2 psoriasis with specific IL-17 inhibitors induced for psoriasis and the same strategy is being approached in asthma for mm-hmm. patients who are unresponsive to biologics to move them to a type 1. And as we move forward in our experience with biologics for chronic sinusitis, those that won't respond May have a smattering of type 1, and it will be interesting to take patients that have failed the $35,000 a year drug and try a medication that costs less than $500 on them. So that we feel that this is again a proof of concept for exactly what Dr. Turner is suggesting, and that we hope that over time we'll get better at elaborating biochemical tests, or better urinary markers. But for the moment, already these phenotypic markers associated with type 2, the absence of these may suggest that the patient doesn't have type 2 disease. And clearly, we're going to have to get better from a clinical and a biochemical level.
1: Agreed. Excellent. And just, just lastly, what is the recommended duration for treatment for the zithromycin? Would you recommend four months trial or? Tasso, can I is take that- this for one second?
2: Go ahead. There is no a magic formula for this, but the concept that we have applied to this has been that we'd like to control inflammation during the resolution phase after injury, in mm-hmm. order to ensure that re proceeds in a normal and coordinated fashion. For that reason, we have guessed, made a guesstimate, that you would have to have a coverage during the entire healing period, which has been estimated from previous work as between 12 and 16 weeks. So we were conservative and recommended 16 weeks. Some people recommend 12 weeks, but nonetheless, the emphasis has to be made that if the goal is barrier restoration, the therapies need to be given for a more prolonged period than they need to be given for regular sinusitis like steroids or antibiotics. Mm-hmm. We don't see a magical fast effect and patients have to be advised that they'll have to wait at least four to six weeks before even feeling the beginning of an effect. So the time frame has to be realistic.
3: Something I'd like to add also is, is the, some studies have shown or have have looked at using the drug on a daily fashion. But I I, I truly believe that the way we've we've done it in terms of a kind of one day on, one day off, even though that sometimes may be a bit more difficult for compliance for certain patients, they may be used, it may be easier for them to take something on a daily fashion than than on a bi-daily fashion or three times a week. We really seen that doing it three times a week or one on, one off, does the effect that we expect and that we want to see without having to do it on a daily regimen.
1: Well, excellent. Dr. Maniakis and Dr. DeRossier, I really appreciate your time today. And I really look forward, given some of the preview of of the data coming forward, we're really excited to see some of the cytokine and, and the genetic data that you have and look forward to it. As always, some great science coming out of Canada and appreciate your time today. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for
3: having us.
0: Thanks for listening. Scope It Out is a co-production of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology and Wiley. All opinions in this podcast are those of podcast hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect those of Wiley or the sponsors.